0: doctrine of inerrancy Okay, and the second of these is actually fairly significant so first of all it does apply to the whole and the parts understood in the light of the whole but secondly we say inerrancy and infallibility apply to the autographs and another I'm not very good at backgrounds they are blue arrows okay Uh, now the autographic text is the text that say came from the Apostles Hand. You know, Romans is originally dictated by Paul and signed off by him and Silvanus. The text is originally given. Now, why the distinction between the autograph and, say, the text or the Greek text that we have today? It's because, and that is what this almost... Blue was not a good colour, was it, really? Uh, that's what this slide, that's the point this slide is making. You see, an error in the original and an error in a copy are are in quite a different class, right? Uh, An error in the original is never able to be corrected. So um, let's just say, uh, and it probably loses force, but let's just say meaning he tripped on a board a piece of wood he had actually written, he tripped on a board, B-O-R-E-D. If, if, if the person who wrote the original had written that, you would spend the rest of your life thinking that some person had fallen asleep in the talk and as he was going out, he just tripped over the board, right? But he actually probably meant he tripped over a loose board on the stage, but you would never work that out if the error was in the original. But if the error's in the copy, well, you could actually then compare all the copies that may have come of that original sentence and you, and you think, actually, seven out of nine read B-O-A-R-D. And actually that reflects four out of five. Oh, actually, I could probably think that those other two were wrong. So you can correct an error in a copy, you can never correct an error in the original. Uh, occurring in the, uh, yeah. Now that is actually important and we'll come to think more about the importance of that when we come to the transmission of the text. But some of you will know that Muslims make a, a great show of uh, you know perfect transmission as if that kind of establishes the Quran as the word of God. But, of course, it doesn't do that at all. If something was never the word of God, it doesn't become perfected by a perfect transmission. So, that's just an aside, for those of you who think about that. Anyhow, uh, there are other things. that's not a truth established empirically. And, again, this is important. What our two words express is not confidence but by our own independent inquiries we can prove all Scripture statements to be true but certainly that all Scripture can and should be trusted because it has come to us by the ministry of men from God's very mouth. And in the end we'll find it more likely that we have misunderstood or our knowledge is complete you know, when we come to a difficulty in Scripture than that God would lie. Now, now, there's a lot more that can be uh, said about uh, inerrancy and infallibility, but I want to move on to talk about sufficiency, the sufficiency and finality of Scripture, because this is actually a very live issue in some uh, areas of uh, the Christian community. So what do we mean by sufficiency? Sufficiency, or claiming that the Scriptures are sufficient, is saying that scripture contains all we need to know about God and his ways to live rightly before him. Scripture in this regard is complete in itself, needing no supplementation and can be interpreted in the light of itself. And you have in the notes a classic Reformation statement of sufficiency, which is found in the Anglican articles. Now, sufficiency doesn't claim that the Bible tells us everything and is the only thing we need to live in the world. It doesn't do that. So it doesn't tell you how to service your car. The Scripture doesn't. It just tells you that out of love of neighbour, you should service your car. Right? It doesn't tell you how the planets rotate. It just tells you who made them and who should get the thanks and praise for their order and beauty. You know, it doesn't tell you all you need to know about the human body, just what you should do with your body uh, to honour God. So, sufficiency isn't claiming that the Bible tells you everything you need to know. No, it says it tells you everything you need to know for salvation and a life of godliness. Now, why is sufficiency an important doctrine? Uh, It's because it, it, it actually is the foundation of the integrity of our relationship With God. Uh, The only mediator between God and man is Christ, and we receive Him and trust Him by trusting His Word. So, sufficiency is about who you have to trust to be saved and live a godly life. Is it Christ alone, or is it Christ and someone else. You know, the church or a charismatic prophet or some philosopher or academic. Sufficiency says it is Christ alone through receiving Christ in his word. So sufficiency teaches us to rely on Christ's promise alone for life, to be directed by Christ's command alone to live as God's people. It preserves Christ's place amongst his people as Saviour and Lord. And it's also important because sufficiency of Scripture is a doctrine that preserves freedom of conscience and action from human tyranny. So it preserves. Your freedom of conscience, say, from the tyranny of the prophetic cult leader who wants to demand obedience to his word, or from the tyranny of human tradition which wants to bind your conscience, or from the tyranny of Christian groups who want to impose their rules as the criteria for belonging to God's people. And sufficiency frees you from the anxiety that some have of thinking in a sense you've got to have a fresh word from God, direct communication from God to know God's will. Now sometime or other that often besets nearly all of us in our Christian life. We really want to please God. We want to in a sense be effective and powerful in his service. How do we do that? Well, it would be great if God would actually tell you. I can remember as a young Christian thinking I, there are two ways I could walk to school, right? And who knows what God has in store for me. He might have this person to bump into and tell the gospel and i will be saved if I walk that way. And when you start thinking like that, you're kind of paralysed. You don't know which way to walk. You know, you've just got to wait. And actually then you discover sufficiency and you think if God hasn't told me, I don't need to know, it's just up to me. And really what I should do is make sure I get to school on time because that's my moral duty, right? So it actually frees you from all that and sufficiency makes clear the basis of Christian unity in what Christ has given us, his gospel, and not in anything else or any other teaching, not in human rules. That's what stops us from being a club and keeps us being Christ's people And, of course, sufficiency is a great encouragement to focus study of Scripture and to meditation on the Word because it tells you here you will learn God's will and it keeps you focused on what God has told us, not on pursuing what he hasn't told us because it says this is what you need to know. And there are, of course, areas where groups are free to come to their own collective decisions. So what's the basis for Scripture's sufficiency? Remembering that there are large groups of the church who want to say scripture is not sufficient. It either needs tradition or it needs, you know, daily prophetic revelations or something like that. So the basis is the necessity of revelation. You can only know of God what God has revealed. And so only what he has revealed has the authority of God. You can only know how to relate to God if he tells you. What pleases him if he tells you? And then, so, the necessity of revelation, and then the fact of inspiration. Inspiration, as we've seen in the teaching of Jesus and the apostles, means that the Bible is God's word. This is where he has told you what pleases him. And there's nothing comparable to it, nothing else as we've seen. <coughs> when we thought of other sources of authority, will tell us God's will for his people. 2 Timothy 3, remember, tells us that through its teaching rebuke correction and training the person of God will be complete capable proficient right equipped furnished for every good work and only God can do that because it's God who has prepared those good works for us Ephesians 2:10 that we should walk in them and thirdly and most importantly this is the most important argument for sufficiency of Scripture is the finality of revelation, saving revelation in Christ. You know, many and various ways God spoke of old to our fathers through the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us through his Son. Now that finality, the finality of Scripture is not arbitrary, as if someone has just decided, bang, there can be no more revelation. It is intrinsic to God saving the world in his Son. Why? Because we say you cannot know more of God than you know in Christ. You can't. Remember Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. John 1 tells us we see God's glory in the Son. I am the Father of one, says Jesus. Colossians tells us all the fullness of deity live in bodily form in Jesus. Remember Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. You cannot know more of God than you know in Jesus in whom scripture says all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. So for knowledge of God, no need for anything more. Oh, and, and we don't need to know more. Because scripture says Jesus, uh, the reference, references are there, uh, Jesus is a full and sufficient Savior. Trusting Him, we have peace with God, Romans 5. We will be spared from the wrath to come. Uh, he is the one who has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He is the one who has brought into being the new covenant where our sins are remembered no more. So just as you can't know more of God than you know in Jesus, you don't need to know more of God than you know in Jesus because he has saved those who trust him for all time and forever. He is the climax of revelation and the fulfilment of all revelation that went before and all that remains now is his return. So, there's no more revelation for salvation, and there's no revelation that can tell you anything more or different of God than what you have learned of Jesus, if it's revelation from the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the true God. Finality undergirds the necessary sufficiency of Scripture. For there is only one place now we can learn of Christ and his salvation. And that is through the witness, the written witness, of those who knew him, whom he appointed as his messengers. And remember Acts one eighteen, the qualification to be an apostle was witness to the resurrection, and no more witnesses to the resurrection. That's why revelation in the New Testament is final, And that's why it is sufficient. It's the historical particularity of salvation in Christ and of his appointed messengers, his apostles, that means there can be no more revelation, nothing to be added to what we already have from the apostles. So to know God for salvation and to know how to live as a follower of Jesus, you have the New Testament. It is sufficient because it is final. People who want to add more, whether it's a Muhammad or a Joseph Smith, haven't so much got the Bible wrong as they have got Christ wrong. Right? In a sense, they're trying to substitute themselves now as the mediator between God and men because they're trying to add to Christ. And as such, they are false prophets, uh, despite the obligatory respect we're meant to show. Come Mohammed's a false prophet. Uh, sufficiency is the rule of Christ through his apostles. And this is what allows the apostolic word primacy amongst his people. It alone is the authority to which we're held accountable and it's why the continuing ministry in the church provided for in the epistles, particularly the pastoral epistles, is the teaching ministry. What you've heard from me trust to faithful men who are able to teach others also. It's this ministry that keeps the teaching of the apostles at the centre of congregational life. Now, there is division over sufficiency, as I've already said, and we'll take questions soon. But there are real dangers of neglecting sufficiency. It's actually the danger of the subjugation of the conscience of believers to human rules. And and we should be fearful of that. In Romans fourteen, Paul, you notice is very careful to preserve people's consciences, the integrity of their consciences. He says, what does not proceed from faith is sin. And so we aren't to force conformity of behaviour without conviction of the truth by the word of God, right? Uh, by group pressure. Uh, where sufficiency is neglected, uh, will give place to human rules and human promises and their confusion with the word of God is always destructive of faith. So, Faye, the person who promises you something that God has not promised you, as if God has, will destroy your faith. The person, say, who promises you that if you have enough faith you'll be healed, making a promise God has not made, will actually destroy your faith because what happens when you're not healed? You've got a choice. Who failed, you or God? Well, I suppose you could say, God, he made me a promise. This man said to a woman, Mate, made me a promise and I'm not healed. God can't deliver. Or, and this is what happens to most pious people, they'll say, I failed. My faith wasn't enough. It's my fault because, you know, God wouldn't do that. Now, that's destructive of faith because I tell you, if you haven't got faith to be healed, why do you think you've got faith to be raised from the dead? Which is harder? It robs you of assurance. So, neglecting sufficiency is dangerous. And as I've said, the confusion of the rules, the rules of men with the rules of God, you know, whether it's the Pharisees or, say, the Roman Catholics about birth control, is destructive of the Christian conscience. When you're expected to give a human rule, the obedience you should only give to God, but the human rule won't make sense. Right, and of course, where you neglect sufficiency, you make the entry of novel and different doctrine, which the New Testament warns us about uh, and tells us to resist so much easier. And that's actually the way the pastoral speak of new doctrine as just different doctrine, different from what you've received from the apostles. Now, here's a question, uh, before I take questions, maybe to prompt questions, do we need words from God, the living word of prophecy, to have a vital Christian life? Should we expect them and encourage others to expect them, you know, words of knowledge or intuitions or constant impressions of God's will? Well the answer is no, of course not, not for salvation. And most people who advocate that uh, say no, of course we don't mean for salvation. But what about fruitfulness and effectiveness? Well, what about fruitfulness and effectiveness? It's an interesting question, isn't it? But remember, the question is not what God can do, but what he teaches us we should expect. And uh, I don't think he teaches us to expect, to be guided by intuitions and impressions. But at this point, because there is debate over these issues, we'll just stop. Uh, for a little while before perspicuity, recognizing I've got to do perspicuity and canon, All right. uh, But but any questions?
1: Thank you. Um, well, as someone who studied Islam, um, uh, I I can say in, in summary that the um, and you you correct me on the Christian side that the the problem in uh, in Christian scripture, is not is not the original, but it is the copies or the, or the copies. But the problem with Islam is not the copies, but it is the original.
0: Absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we will come to the copies, and it's yeah. not such yeah. a big yeah. problem. Yeah.
1: So, um, so if if we if we um, uh, define the in inerrancy, iner- 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 because uh, you define it here as um, uh, the quality of being free from error or any of any kind, yeah. factual, moral, or spiritual. So factual. Uh, does it does it mean textual? Sorry? Does it mean textual in the text?
0: In the text itself? Uh, no, because we're applying this to the autographic text. The autographic text okay. is free of any error. All right. uh, it doesn't apply to things like grammar or idiomatic expression or things like that. Okay. You know, rules of grammar are actually arbitrary observational rules. But I have seen somebody use that as an argument against... The inerrancy of the Book of Revelation, but anyhow, yep, misunderstood. Yep.
1: So, 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 in this case, um, um, uh, how do we um, explain uh, parts of the Scripture, like, for example, First uh, John 5:7, uh, John 3:13, uh, Mark 16, yep, I, I will,
0: they're, they're Exactly the uh, parts of Scripture uh, that I have in my notes for the next lecture on the text. Very good. Okay, there, thank you. you. Yep. Ray, behind you. Neil, um, you mentioned about uh, apostles, then to qualify as an apostle, you have to have seen the risen, the risen Christ. Um, can you give us a reference? Hey, Acts 118. One of us must become... A, one of these men is... 22, sorry. Thank you. They test all things. Right. LAUGHTER and take advice Uh, so one of the men who have accompanied us uh, during all the time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection and that was actually the role of the apostles and notice they're actually conscious of the number too so it's actually very deliberate so no more apostles after Paul and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Last of all.
1: Yeah. Uh, Neil, I've just got a question about um, the process or the argument by which the church, in, in around about three to 400, um, went through to decide which letter to keep, which letter to ditch.
0: Uh, next, I should get onto that in about 10 minutes. And I'm now running on that clock. <laughs> That's always the way you start the sermon, by this clock, you finish it by that clock. Yeah, Good. Okay, I'm going to crack on. Nobody asks about prophecy, you can ask me about that afterwards. That's good. Good. Okay, the next thing is perspicuous, which just means, as I said, an obscure way of saying easily understood and clear. And this is actually just a way of saying that God's word achieves the purpose for which he gave it in the lives of his people. He gave it to make us wise for salvation and he gave it to equip us for every good work. So this really is a statement... Oh, I've come to the end. I thought I'd added Isaiah 55 there, but I didn't. Uh, this really is a statement about the effectiveness of God's word to do the work God has purposed for it. And it says it will do that work in the lives of God's people by itself, without dependency on any human aid or supplement, denying the need for dependency on any human interpreter or institution. It just relies on the work of the Spirit who gave the Word, applying it to the lives of God's people. So this doctrine of clarity says God's Word does its work in the lives of God's Spirit because God is at work in and through uh, His Word. So we hold, says T.C. Hammond, that scripture is capable of giving up its proper meaning for every age and circumstances, provided someone is willing to be taught by and obey the Holy Spirit. Now, this doctrine has been criticised, and I think I gave you a quote there. The Bible is a large, complex and diverse book. And that to let the uninstructed reader try to derive his doctrine from it is likely to result and has time and time again resulted in folly and manifest error. Now that is a great commendation of the Swedish method, really. Uh, (coughs) Right. uh, Now uh, the, the repeated argument against clarity is the multiplicity of interpretations of parts of scripture which do often manifest in error and disagreement. So we need to hear this Criticism: (laughs) There is error and in the New Testament God through his spirit gives teachers and provision is made for the transmission of apostolic teaching and we're told of the need to test what we hear and we see in Titus and 1 Timothy the creation of structures preserving truth and refuting error and all that's there in scripture so this doctrine needs to be carefully expressed and clearly understood uh, because it's not anointing any particular reader with infallibility in their interpretation. And a good statement of this doctrine is Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 1, Section 7. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of scripture or other, that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. And that's a great statement of, uh, of uh, clarity. Now, what's the due use of ordinary means? Well, for most of us, it's using an authorised translation intelligent reading, you know, asking of the text, questions intelligence readers, intelligent readers ask of any text, you know, what comes before, what comes after, who, what, when, how, why, right? Uh, and belonging to a community of interpretation, you know, a community uh, which preserves the truth by creeds and teaching and tested leaders. And I also think actually the due use of ordinary means is teaching at home from childhood, So there's familiarity with the whole book that informs every reading of the part. And, of course, in all this, we're talking about the use of these means in someone in whom the Spirit of God is at work. Now, what is the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture opposing? Well, it's actually opposing the unchallenged authority of the teaching magisterium of the institutional church and a dependency on scholarship. It expresses not only a confidence that Scripture will achieve its purpose in the lives of God's people, but that the body of believers can hold authorities accountable to the supreme authority. Not just can, they should. What of the multiplicity of error and disagreement? Is this an argument, is error and disagreement an argument against the Protestant commitment to Scripture alone? Well, let's think about this. Firstly, error is not new. As the New Testament clearly shows us, the Pharisees misused the Scripture. And Jesus responded to that with correct interpretation, not abandoning the authority of Scripture. And error was a fact of the apostolic church. And I've given you a, a list there. Uh, you know, Peter speaks about how the ignorant and unstable twist Scripture, twist the writings of Scripture. Or 1 Timothy 1 speaks of. People who aspire to be teachers of the law but don't understand it or people who teach out of greed or people who follow the deceptive teaching of demons. right? And, and remember the devil twisted scripture in the temptation yet Jesus did not reject scripture or its authority. Now, So that error, the presence of error, didn't lead the apostles to think God's word was not God's word nor to deny 2 Timothy 3. That all scripture is God breathed. It did make them urge their hearers to be discerning and faithful, and to stay within the community of interpretation established by their teaching. And that's the community that consciously lives under the authority of God's Word, subjecting their thoughts and teaching to its teaching. And that community continues to operate and is the environment in which the Scriptures preserved and transmitted. So when they confronted error, the apostles didn't find fault with the text but with people. You know, So they responded, say, by emphasising the need for the work of the Spirit and recognising that humans who didn't have the Spirit would not understand the Word of God, 1 Corinthians 2. And that's why you should have no unregenerate people, no people who are not born again amongst your leaders and teachers. They will corrupt the truth. Uh, or they recognize humans who are ambitious for power, influence, and status. Say Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 6 and, uh, yeah, uh, as the reason. Uh, for false teaching, because they're trying to carve out a niche which will either give them status or be materially advantageous to themselves. Or they speak of the work of the evil one who seeks to disseminate lies and divide the church. You know how Satan, 2 Corinthians 11, appears as an angel of light? It's no wonder his servants appear so well. Clarity doesn't deny that scripture comes from another time and culture, nor that some illusions are obscure, nor the need for work in understanding it. But it does assert what is plainly seen in Christian experience confirms. That in de Young's words, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And it's why scripture has been universally instructive in the lives of God's people across time and cultures. And it has been. One of the amazing things about Scripture is not why it's occasionally misunderstood, but why so many have got it so right so often for such a length of time. And the clarity of Scripture actually encourages us to maintain the proportion of Scripture, to actually let the main things be the main things, to keep the balance and emphasis of Scripture, because not all things are alike plain. And it helps us to temper our confidence in interpreting the more obscure, and it tells us not to elevate minors into major issues, like you know how much water you need to be baptised with, or really what is going on in the millennium. Right, so, uh, good. Now, I'd like to crack on and speak about canon, if that's okay. And there is no overhead for this because most of the stuff there is in the notes, and there's uh, There's reading uh, references there. Now, what particular books by particular human authors should be regarded as scripture? Why does our Bible have the books it does? And why is this collection of books in the Bible a collection invested with an authority other religious writings, including other Christian writings, don't have? Now, the idea of the Bible as an authoritative and closed collection of books is contained in the word canon, right? Uh, what does that word mean? What do we mean by canon? And I'll put there, a canon, a Greek word, has a sense of a rule or a measuring rod and that gives it a twofold sense in relation to the Scriptures. Firstly, a group of books to which a prescribed test has been applied and which have been found to conform to the conditions of that test and are therefore admitted as authentic or canonical, that is, conforming to the canon, to the rule or standard. But then secondly, the term is then applied to that collection of canonical books as a whole because they then, conforming to the test, become the test. They come to constitute the canon, the rule of faith, by which all doctrine must be tested. So the idea of canon is tied up with the idea of the Bible having authority in the Church and amongst Protestants that is the Bible having supreme authority. Now the last 100 years so, the idea of canon and longer has been the subject of debate and at the heart of the theological debate about the canon is the issue of authority the claim for sole ultimate authority in the church to rest in the word of God. And somebody may need to press the button on the air conditioner because the emergency button only went for two hours. Good, thanks. Right, right. Now, attempts to undermine the Bible as the sole of authority via a discussion of the canon can take three forms. Firstly, and this is the older one, the rejection of Scripture alone as the unique and supreme authority in the church. So this is an attempt to vindicate the necessity of the equal or greater authority of the church in its tradition as the institution that is established, as you heard so with the Catholics, the canon, with the suggestion that the church confers authority. Right. So so the first attack on the notion of canon is that actually it's created by the church and so it's the church... That gives the Bible the authority, and therefore the church is over the Bible, or at least is coordinate authority with it. Secondly, there's an attack on the canon uh, because there is a rejection of the notion of inspiration implied in the concept of canon. There are those who want to suggest that the process of the collection of the various books of the Bible into the canon, uh, a purely human historical process, is at one with the whole development of Scripture, which has always been a purely human process. So they want to use the canonical process to both illustrate the humanity of Scripture as a whole, its sole humanity, and then to undermine the suggestion that it's inspired by God. Now thirdly, there are those who then agree with that position, that Scripture's not inspired, who want to use the idea of canon as a way of rejecting and repudiating orthodox Christianity. That is, people who wish to reshape the canon to establish the authority of academic interpreters, say, or other religious writings. Have you heard of the uh, Jesus uh, Seminar? Have you heard of that? Anyhow, Robert Funk, who heads up the Jesus Seminar, has now called for a canon council to meet jointly with the Jesus Seminar over several years. Uh, the Council will discuss whether the book of Revelation should be retained as part of the New Testament. And, and that was in the light of events that happened in America and the role of Revelation. And he notes, uh, Don Carson, who that's quote's from, note that they've actually already, the Jesus and given canonical status to Thomas in their edition of the five Gospels. And I've got a little quote from Thomas uh, Uh, which will make you wonder about that judgment. So this is the very end of, end of the book of Thomas. Uh, so this is, once you read these, uh, the, these apocryphal gospels, you realise why you're so thankful they never got included and never could be. But, but this goes like this, the very last verse. Simon Peter said to them, Let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, "I myself shall lead her, in order to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit, resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven." There you go. <laughs> so, so aren't you? Yeah. There you go. Anyhow, uh, it's, so, so uh, there are people who want to undermine Orthodox Christianity, and often it's because. Uh, they want to legitimise a pluralistic view of Christianity. That is, that there are many different ways of being a Christian that don't involve submitting to the authority of the Bible. So you can still be a Christian, say, and reject the resurrection or reject the authority of the apostles, but draw a stipend from a Christian institution because you're still a Christian. right? Uh, Now, that's the stated agenda of some feminists. So Elizabeth uh, schusler Fiorenza. Uh, in searching the scriptures, a feminist commentary deliberately included, you know, the book of Sophia and Trimorphic proto all uh, Gnostic uh, works, because she believes that our current canon was the result of authoritarian and patriarchal tendencies, excluding other legitimate forms of the Christian faith uh, that were just not apostolic, you see, and so she set about through the canon and widening the boundaries of the canon to re-pluralise the Christian faith, which just happens to endorse her own position. And the impacts of these developments can be seen in popular culture in such works as the Da Vinci Code. Uh, Yeah, anyhow, enough said. uh, so, as I say, an attempt to pluralise early Christianity to legitimate a, plural, to legitimate a pluralistic view of contemporary Christianity. Uh, that is, that there are many different ways of being Christian that don't involve submitting to the authority of the Bible. Now, how are we to think about the idea of canon, keeping in mind these challenges? Well, firstly... The idea of a canon is inherent in the idea of special revelation. That is, it's inherent in the idea that there is a body of writings that can be distinguished from all others because it is given by God, that its words are God's words. If it is the case that in Scripture God speaks, then those works are to be distinguished from all other merely human writings. And they already possess authority, the authority of their divine author those books in which God speaks will then become the test or rule of every other claim about God and how to live to please God. So the idea of canon is inherent in the idea that God speaks in Scripture. Now, in relation to the first claim, that the church creates the Bible and is therefore either coordinate in authority or has authority over the Bible In thinking of the canon, we need to distinguish between an authoritative list of books and a list of authoritative books. Okay, An authoritative list of books and a list of authoritative books. Incorporation of authoritative books, that books that already possess authority into a list acknowledges the authority of the book, but it doesn't confer authority. What it does is just clarify where one can find those authoritative books, books that already have authority and thus facilitates access to them. So two illustrations. Think of the law of gravity. Formulating the law doesn't create gravity, just acknowledges its existence and in a sense allows access to it. Formulating the list of authoritative books doesn't create their authority. Or, in the days before you looked up Safe Traveller on the DFAT website, uh, the Foreign Office uh, used to put out advices in relation to travel and safety. Now, each of those advices was authoritative. It came with the authority of the department. If later they were collected into a book, the collection doesn't give them authority. They're actually being collected because they already have authority and the collection makes access to them easier. Now, this is basically what happened with the collection of the New Testament books into the Bible. See, they were already recognised, you know, Romans or Matthew or something, as having authority and kept and collected because they already were recognised as having authority. And this process is consistent with the church's foundation because the test for collection was what I'm going to call apostolicity. That is, that they either came from the apostles or the apostolic circle and therefore had the endorsement of the apostles and were consistent with apostolic teaching. You see, those books had authority in the congregation and were being collected before the external pressures that necessitated lists being made, which I'm going to talk about. And that test of apostolicity is the only one consistent with the church as the people of God who come into being by accepting the apostolic message as God's message. That's how congregations started, wasn't it? The apostles came and preached. People received their word as the word of God, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. That brought them into being. Their start was receiving the apostolic word as the word of God, as having authority. Well, when they received words from the apostles written down, the Apostles' word already has authority. And having authority, they then become the authority, the test of all other claims to Christian truth. So the church, as Warfield said, didn't grow by natural law, it was founded. Apostolic authority is prior to the church, as is the concept of Scripture as a body of writings. The church already inherited that from Judaism. The development of a list... While a historical process was not an arbitrary process or the result of some power struggle in the early church, it followed the logic of God speaking through the witness of the apostles. And the collection together served the purpose of clarifying where that authority could be found, distinguishing accepted, acknowledged authority from imitations and facilitating access to apostolic teaching. So that's the big idea. Once you've got the idea, you understand canon and that it's actually the logical outcome of having a word of God written and that word of God being the apostolic testimony. Now, what was the historical process? In this, I'm going to focus uh, mainly on the New Testament. On the one hand, there's uh, less controversy about the process for the Old Testament. On the other hand, the Old Testament canon has the most variability amongst churches. Uh, You know, Orthodox, Ethiopian, Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, they all have different Old Testaments to some extent. This is because of the disputed place of the Apocrypha. Books that were included in the Septuagint but were never part of the Hebrew Old Testament canon. Now, the Protestant Old Testament is the Hebrew Jewish scriptures, which is in everybody's version of the Old Testament. That is those known and read in the synagogue in Jesus' day in his Bible. But if you're want to, interested in the Old Testament canon, uh, I refer you to those books below and there's some brief notes. I'm going to talk about the New Testament canon. What are the factors that generated the historical process of actually gathering these books that have authority together? Well, firstly starts with the authority of the apostolic word. And remember, Paul expected his letters to be read, Colossians 4.16, in Christian congregations. Letters were to be read and they were expected to be believed and obeyed. And yet, of course, with the passing of time, the apostles start to die too. And so the time-bound nature of the foundational testimony means it's vital that all subsequent believers have access to that testimony and that'll only happen if it's written down. So you have the generation of the New Testament. And you also already have in the New Testament the need for recognition and delimiting of the authoritative writings that started in the times of the Old Testament. And and you can see, uh, if you look up those references, where Paul says, I'm signing this, so that you'll know it's from me, right? There are already fakes, And he was already concerned to distinguish the true from the false. There were counterfeits and imitations already. There's a concern for genuineness. And let me say, if you've heard of it, there is no evidence of acceptance of pseudonymity in the New Testament church. In fact, they're hostile to counterfeit. And they called it lying, as we should. Right, so what's the historical development? So let's say New Testament's written 50 to 100 AD, now, some people put a couple of the epistles maybe in the 40s. Then they started to be collected uh, because the writings were read and collected in the churches and this can be seen in Clement, late 1st century Ignatius, early 2nd century Polycarp, And in all of those, uh, you already have what they would call the Gospel and the Apostle. The four Gospels and the Epistles of Paul and one or two others. Now in the second century various challenges developed uh, to in a sense the foundational role of apostolic teaching. Uh, developed in terms of what you might call subtraction and addition. So there's a bloke called Marcion who came along and he wanted to subtract. He was an anti-Semite and so he really only wanted to have Luke and Paul in his New Testament and all the others got the boot. But then there were people like the Gnostics who wanted to add. Uh, They really were preaching a different way of salvation, teaching that in a sense Jesus was a uh, teacher who had a kind of a spirit who come down from heaven and who gave secret teaching that would allow you to progress through the heavens to reunion with the One, and uh, they started to produce their own writings, like the Gospel of Thomas, which is a Gnostic work from the second century, or the Gospel of Truth, uh, a Valentinian work, or the Gospel of Philip, uh, right? And the tendency of these second-century works was sometimes to use the name of the apostles, which of course testifies to the prior recognised authority of the apostles. And actually the works themselves, so the gospel truth, also testify to the prior authority of many New Testament books because it alludes to and cites them, and that suggests that they are spiritual, and therefore it's also an allegation. So you've got Marcion, you've got the Gnostics, uh, you've got uh, the Montanists later on who are claiming you get extra special revelations. uh, But kind of not really well enough organised to write them down. So, so you're getting these challenges and then people respond to those challenges with early lists. So the rejection of spurious gospels in Irenaeus and Tertullian and Origin, and you can see that. And F.F. And F. Bruce in his work has all the original documents translated for you. And then you move to complete agreement about our canon. And Athanasius' festal letter of 367 AD is the first uh, complete, as it were, section of the canon. But really, the core of it is being established really by the end of the 1st century, early 2nd century. Right, now, uh, to see how the test of apostolicity was applied... um, uh, let's think about, just as an illustration, three categories used by Eusebius. He was a famous church historian, You 320, know, 325 AD, Bishop of Caesarea. And when he comes to talk about Scripture, he talks about three categories, what he calls the homologumina, that which everybody talks about and agrees on, the acknowledged authorities. And They were the four Gospels, Acts, the Epistles of Paul, which for them included Hebrews, 1 John, 1 Peter, Revelation, Right? And uh, they, they will come to Revelation. Then there's what he calls anti legumina, that is, books that some speak for, but some have doubts about. And that really only included James, 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John, and Jude. Now, as I said, Eusebius had doubts about Revelation. Uh, but that wasn't because he doubted its origin. He doubted its theology. He could never get himself accommodated to its uh, millennialism. Uh, but he knew it had always been accepted in Rome, so Irenaeus was very fond of Revelation. It had an unbroken uh, succession in Rome. Now he was just worried about its theology. Uh, and then he had a third category called canonical, which included respected works like the Didache and the Shepherd of Hermes and Barnabas, which were thought to be edifying, but known not to to come from the apostles, so they weren't included. And he also has a category of completely heretical books. Now, why were some books the anti-legumina, the books not accepted by all? Well, look at those books. They're actually the smaller books, less widely circulated, or like uh, James, probably Palestinian in origin. And so they were less well-known and that has to do with their particularity. What was looked for in the process of clarification? Well, again, it was apostolicity, that these books had either been written by apostles or their immediate associates like James and so had the apostles sanction. How did they establish apostolicity? Well, a couple of ways. Firstly, there was what you call antiquity or consensus about their historicity, that these had been received by some ancient church, you know, uh, Alexandria, Antioch, Rome, Ephesus, right. some ancient church continuously. That's what they looked for, that in a sense one of these churches had received them from their foundation basically and could testify to that. Uh, So a continuous use from the beginning. And then they looked at orthodoxy or internal confirmation. Was their doctrine apostolic, conforming to the known teaching of the apostles? And so the authority of the New Testament is essentially the authority of the apostolic circle. The appeal to testimony in these small cases... It was not to obtain the judgment of the church that these books were canonical, but to actually ascertain the fact, this is Alexander and Dunbar that they are indeed the productions of the apostles to whom our Lord had promised plenary inspiration. So there was never a sense in which they thought they were conferring authority. They were establishing, rather, that the authority of these books had always been recognised amongst the churches. Uh, Right Now, uh, and so we should have confidence in our canon because Christianity had the idea of Scripture and thus of the canon recognised books where God spoke from Judaism, so from the very beginning of the Christian movement. There was always an expectation of new Scripture inherent in God's work in Christ and the role he gave the apostles of being his witnesses to the end of the world as the New Testament emerged, all assumed the authority of these books from the apostles and their circle as authentic communication of God's once for all revelation in Christ and whose authors were either identified by name or relationship. They did have spurious books. We have spurious books. And comparison reveals the genuine differences. There is a clear distinction. And... uh, I mean, they are fun. If you got, um, you know, the the infancy gospel of Thomas? Jesus would have been a very handy kid to be friends with. After some days, Jesus was playing in the upper story of a house and one of the children who were playing with him fell down from the house and died. And when the other children saw it, they fled and Jesus remained alone. And the parents of the one who was dead came and accused him, but they threatened him. Then Jesus leaped down from the roof and stood by the corpse of the child and cried out with a loud voice, Zeno. Now that's a bit of a giveaway, not a very Jewish name, right? Zeno, for that is what he was called, arise and tell me, did I throw you down? And he arose at once and said, no, Lord, you did not throw me down, but you raised me up. Or his father was a carpenter and made at that time ploughs and yokes and he received an order from a rich man to make a bed for him but when one beam was shorter than its corresponding one and they did not know what to do the child Jesus said to his father lay down the pieces of wood and make them even from the middle to one end and Joseph did as the child told him and Jesus stood at the other end and took hold of the shorter piece of wood and stretching it made it equal to the other and his father Joseph saw it and was amazed and he embraced the child and kissed him saying I'm really happy God has given me this child. Whereas I would be really worried but, because, yeah, anyhow it, once you read them, you see the difference. It's only our lack of familiarity with them that makes us unsettled every time you know, somebody brings out a fragment of the Gospel of Judas or something like that which they, they, there was a time a few years ago when almost every Easter they'd be bringing out one of these things in the wake of you know, Dan Brown uh, but the, 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 the content and provenance show that they don't come from the apostles at all, anyhow. So we actually have good reason to be confident and the content bears witness to itself. So canon is not a foreign or artificial concept. It's consistent with the scriptures own self-understanding and with the authoritative promulgation of the gospel and the apostolic foundation of the churches. That is, it's consistent with the spread of the gospel and the way churches were established. This itself was the result of Jesus' clearly expressed will to make disciples of all nations and his appointment, empowerment and commissioning of the apostles, including Paul, to preach his gospel. The notion of a pluralistic early Christianity is a projection of the late 20th century and before that of the views of early Catholicising liberals. The alleged other gospels are late, they're not eyewitnesses and they're quite fanciful. And we should contend again for the apostolic foundation of Christianity as they are the Lord's appointed messengers and we do that by embracing the whole canon of Scripture as God's gift to us. Questions? I don't have the microphone, so it's... Uh, Neil, you... Uh, earlier said that the church uh, included the book of Hebrews on the belief that Paul was the author. Um, when and why did the church begin to doubt the, the Pauline authorship of Hebrews and does this have any consequence for its canonicity? No. Uh, answer second question first because it's also included, included by association so even though it doesn't have the name, it's included by that association with Timothy at the end uh, of Hebrews 13 and included also for its clear apostolic content so in terms of both those things it was actually never doubted it's one of those books that were never ever doubted to be scripture when did they start to doubt that's a good question and I'd probably have to look it up I think I have a recollection that Jerome had some doubts about it, and I think Origin. So at the beginning of the commentaries, so so Origin's third century. Yep, no saying, and then it got moved. Hmm. Neil, I'm just a bit concerned. Well, not concerned, but I'm a bit curious. Uh, if the Catholic Church was so full of tradition. Why did they suddenly leave the, the canon of scripture and start adding these other books, which you see a lot of the early painters paint all these different weird trips and stuff? That now, they You're talking about the Old Testament, what we call well, the Apocrypha? I, I don't know if it's Old Testament, or, well, I suppose it has to be Old Testament, but it's just strange um, different yeah, trips now, and things in it that, you know, that, of course, aren't in our Bible, and the books aren't in our Bible, but they're in the Catholic. Yeah, but they were in the Septuagint in various forms. And there are the book by Beckwith, and then there's an article there. It's actually an issue for translation of the Bible today. So it depends how you think about the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it also had included in it uh, because it's you know like a like a bookshelf. So there are other books on the bookshelf, like one and two Maccabees and Tobit and Manasseh and things like that. Now, they have always been distinguished as different. So even Jerome, though they went into the Vulgate, but he distinguished them as as being edifying but not equivalent. And and Catholic theology itself has actually treated them differently too, even though that they are included. But they did get into the popular imagination. And so there are lots of stories of Judas and medieval art has taken up a lot of those. In relation to this, this is what the Anglican articles say. And the other books, as Jerome says, the church does read, for example, of life and instruction of manners, but yet does it not apply them to establish any doctrine? Such are these following. Third Esdras, fourth Esdras, Tobias, Judith, Esther, the Maccabees, and all that kind of stuff. So they have been known from the beginning uh, they, uh, and you'll find them included in the Old Testament in various forms with variation in the Ethiopian Orthodox, the Syriac and uh, the Vulgate. But they have usually not been recognised to have the same authority. Their origin was because they're included in the Septuagint. But uh, we, uh, our canon is the Hebrew canon. And there's no evidence that they actually ever had authority in Judaism. And interestingly, most copies of the Septuagint we have are Christian copies, actually. That's, that's where they're going. So they got into the imagination. And, and many Bibles will publish the Apocrypha. And uh, sometimes it's interesting to read 1 and 2 Maccabees or Wisdom. Uh, they are edifying in some level. And, yeah. uh, not Scripture, but interesting. And then, say, Ben Sirach gives you actually evidence of the Hebrew canon. It, the references are there in the Old Testament. Um, just along those lines, with books like Mark, where it's mostly recognised as canon, but then you get to like the end of 16 and you see 9 to 20 and then some would not include that, How would you then go about putting that in the canon books? Good. Uh, That's for next week because that's a question of text. Okay? And the short answer is even those texts that include it usually include it with obelisks or marks or an indication. So the ending of mark is an interesting textual problem. There are a series of endings. There's the shorter ending. There's the longer ending. Many that have the longer ending actually indicate that they know it wasn't in the original. So... But it's an issue of text. And uh, the second part, um, with the extra book between the two Corinthians that we have, so Paul writing another book to the Corinthians that might have been lost, is that also covered next week? Oh That's a really good point. If we found it, is it going to the canon? If we could demonstrate unbroken continuity of reception as apostolic. That would be pretty hard to demonstrate now, Mm. like it would be, but it's actually a really good question. And and there are books uh, we don't have uh, which are apostolic, and there are also books in Scripture, referenced in Scripture, that, that we don't have too. So they were discriminating. That's part of the Old Testament canon. We don't have the Book of Jasher or the Book of Wars, even though they are quoted. At times, so so there was discrimination in where they found authority, received as authoritative. Hmm. Okay, well, I've done everybody in again, and not one question about prophecy. Ah, oh, dear me! Uh, so I have a question about um, so uh, does the idea of canon challenge uh, like the, the the Bible being uh, inerrant? And having authority and infallibility, so those things that you covered at the start of the talk, uh, because I guess canon means that we need people to decide, uh, and 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 because there's different canons from different denominations. um, uh, What so does it? Yeah. Yeah. So only in the Old Testament, not in the New. Okay. There there is no different New Testament canon in any Christian church. no, and it it actually doesn't undermine issues of authority or inerrancy. What it actually does is witness to their recognition. okay I'll come back to this it's the distinction between an authoritative list of books and a list of authoritative books. Now, the church could create an authoritative list of books and say, "This is what we think we are giving these authority, or it can say this is where we've always found authority. The idea of canon is historically this one. It's saying this is where we've always found authority. And that's why there was so little dispute about so much. There was never any dispute from the 1st century. Four Gospels, the Epistles of Paul, you can see them circulating as collections really from 1 Clement on. Uh, And one Clement is the last ten years of the first century. Uh, And then Ignatius, they're, they're all there. The only ones that were ever in doubt were these smaller ones. And that's because they did not have the circulation. So it actually reinforces inspiration because it's saying this is where we've always recognised authority to be. Why? Because we think the apostolic word is the word of God and these are the works of the apostles or their associates. Why do we think that? Well, that's actually how we came into being. We believe the apostles to be preaching the gospel of God, to be messengers of Jesus coming with his words. And that was true when they preached to us. It's true when they write to us because that's the role Jesus has given so so the actual creation of a canon reinforces the view that there is a set of books in which the church has always heard god doesn't undermine it it is actually not true that they, they did not confer authority on them they recognized the authority that was already there and had been there from the beginning and that was actually one of the things they had to establish Unbroken reception is apostolic and authority that was there from the beginning. Does that clarify? Okay. Good. Okay, last question. So what about God speaking to people and they believe God's spoken to them? God can speak to Abraham, Why can't or the prophets, why can't he speak to Christians now? They might say, are we putting God in a box? There's no reason why he can't. Many of our Iranian friends will tell us he has. The question is, should you teach people to expect that? And is your Christian life in any way deficient if it hasn't happened? And you shouldn't expect it because you don't get a promise of it. Yeah, you know, Even in the New Testament, God kind of speaking in dreams and visions and things, it was actually rare. That's why it's recorded. You know, when Paul has this dream and things like that, right? So you you sh- you, you you shouldn't expect people uh, to expect that. And your Christian life is not deficient if it doesn't happen. Let me tell you why. Okay, what happens with the dreams? Because I talked to a few of the Iranians, and you look at the prophecy of Agabus and things like that. Often it's particular, might be helpful. Often it's a bit obscure. Okay. Why do you think you are somehow impoverished because you don't have this obscure, infrequent and occasional word and all you've got is this gospel which is sure, public, certain and tells you how to be saved and how to live a godly life? If you start to prefer this, if you think that that is a kind of a better expression of God's care for you or a more immediate experience of it, you have been trapped. You've been trapped into relying on your own experience and experiences to give you an assurance of God's grace. The only real assurance you will ever get is actually being able to say, "The Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me." If you can say that, you're rich. You know, you, you know. So, so yeah, God can do whatever He likes, and He keeps on doing whatever He likes. Isn't that amazing? Right? But, uh, but, but you shouldn't expect it. When it happens, you should test all things. Hold fast to what's good, abstain from every form of evil. And test is the apostolic scriptures, the word of God. Good. Well, thank you for that, Jonathan. I fished for that and you delivered. That's good. I'm going to close with prayer. Good. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this great and glorious gospel that comes and says you sent your son into the world in love to give us life through his death, that says in trusting him we are forgiven and you give us your spirit that cries in our heart, Abba Father, we thank you and praise you for this gift of peace, for this gift of adoption, for this hope of eternal life which we have come to know through your word, the word our Lord Jesus commissioned his apostles to preach, the word which they have borne testimony to, to the end of the earth, through their writings. We give you praise and thanks. Help us to always hear that word and to tremble at it, to receive it with faith and a humble heart that puts it into practice. In Jesus' name. Amen. So next week we will get to text. I'm a week behind. And we may or may not get to interpretation, which is Where we've been gunning for them.